Okay, so um, it's uh, time to start. So let me introduce the person who will do the introduction, which is uh, Kurt Callen. No, 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 no. Well, I want to welcome you all on behalf of the physics department to the 30th, count them, 30th annual Donald Ross Hamilton lecture. Uh, Donald Ross Hamilton, whose picture is on the screen at the moment, uh, was an atomic and nuclear experimental physicist who made major contributions to the physics department and to the university. And these lectures, this whole lecture series, uh, were endowed by the class of 1935, of which Don Hamilton was a distinguished member, and his family and friends. And we are very grateful to all of them. And we're very happy to see a large turnout, as usual, by the Hamilton family. Uh, we will, uh, per I'd like first to say a few words about Don Hamilton himself. Uh, he was born in 1914 in Vermont. Uh, he, was, he attended public schools there and in New York City. He went to Princeton and, as I said, graduated in, in the, uh, the, the magnificent class of 1935, which has done so much for the university and the physics department. He graduated with highest honors and during his whole subsequent career was a loyal supporter of the university. Uh, his only mistake was to go to Columbia University for his PhD, where he worked with Isidore Rabi, and uh, I am assured by Will Happer, who uh, knew him extremely well and could understand the excellence of Don's skills as an experimental physicist, that he did some remarkable work uh, at Columbia for his thesis. And he then went to Harvard University to be a member of the Society of Fellows, wrote a beautiful paper which could have uh, earned him admission to the uh, subculture of theorists. But then during World War II, he went to the Rad Lab at MIT and uh, turned his scientific talents to the development of microwave generators for radar. Uh, he joined the Princeton faculty in 1946. He was the Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor of Physics from 55 until 57 and then was co-opted by the university to serve as dean of the graduate school. He served there from 58 to 65 when failing health finally compelled him to resign. Uh, he loved teaching, and before he was laid low by his physical affliction, he was a great teacher remembered by many, many students. Uh, even after he had stopped teaching because of uh, medical problems, he conducted lively seminars in his home for his thesis students, uh, and the, these are remembered to this day by some of us. Uh, he, under his supervision, systematic growth of the Princeton Graduate School was carried forward. Full-time enrollments increased from 800 to about 1,100. The first women were admitted to deg degree as degree candidates. I well remember this event. I came as a graduate student that year. Um, fresh graduate programs were begun in important new subjects like biochemical sciences, East Asian studies, linguistics. And as, as dean, he had an influential hand in all of these developments. And here, as in other parts of his career, he was interested in the pursuits of humanists, no less than those of scientists. He saw us all as engaged in a common cause and he sought to strengthen that cause, the pursuit of learning and the life of the mind. 
Don Hamilton's good influence among us as teacher, scholar, and administrator and friend will continue to be felt for years to come. Uh, he was a rare person whose memory will live long, and we need more like him. Now, we're very, very pleased to see members of Don's family with us tonight. Uh, his wife, Pat, his son, David, his daughter, Ellie. We're sad to report the passing of Don's oldest daughter, Erica. She was, a, she was devoted to her father, and she was a very, very deep and profound supporter of these lectures. Uh, she helped greatly in their organization. And a number of people have, in fact, contributed to the Hamilton Lecture Fund in her honor. And to judge from the number of younger generation Hamilton faces in the audience, uh, perhaps her enthusiasm has been passed on to subsequent generations, and we hope so. So I would now like to pass to, the, uh, to introduce the speaker uh, for the 30th Donald Hamilton Lecture, uh, Professor David Gross. David is a friend and colleague of long date of me and many people in the room, and it's a rare pleasure to have the honor to introduce him to you. Uh, David went to high school in New York, went to university in Israel, and in Jerusalem University, and then uh, got his PhD in Berkeley. He went to the Harvard Society of Fellows, where I first met him when I was a struggling young assistant professor at Princeton, and he was living the high life of a junior fellow at faculty at, uh, at Harvard, <laughs> and I was living the low life of a Harvard faculty member. <laughs> he then came to Princeton, and I followed uh, a short time later, and we had some wonderful times together doing science and uh, teaching and basically having a good time being uh, young people in, a, in an expanding world of exciting new science. Uh, he eventually, after, gosh, how many years on the faculty? 25 at least, uh, went to Santa Barbara, where he is now the director of the Kavli Institute for Theoretical Physics. And he has a bully pulpit in which he has uh, enormous influence on how theoretical physics is thought of and done in this country and the world. His achievements as a scientist are enormous. Uh, it's hard to think of a subject that touches on what we call theoretical particle physics, to which David has not contributed something of value and many, many times something of absolutely overwhelming value. He received the Nobel Prize in 2004 for the joint discovery of asymptotic freedom with his student, Frank Wilczek, uh, who is probably in the audience somewhere. I can't see Frank, but I know he's here. Uh, and after that, th this was a founding, founding moment in the, in the uh, establishment of the standard model of the theory of particle physics, and he has never stopped being inventive and uh, creative in the pursuit of deeper knowledge of the world we live in. Uh, he has won almost every honor imaginable. I think we could maybe imagine one or two more, but it's hard to think of what could possibly meet the, the standard that he's already set. He is noted for his conviction, imagination, and vision. He's an inspirational teacher. Uh, he's had more notable PhD students than anyone I can think of with, as a subnote for the cognoscenti, Julian Schwinger, but I think he's, uh, he's up there. Uh, and uh, 
I, I think when, when I heard the title of this talk, The Future of Physics, uh, I gasped, and then I decided that, well, there was really nobody better qualified to tell us about the future of physics because this is somebody who has had a, an enormous amount to do with what physics is at this very moment. Uh, I also gasped because the subtitle was 25 questions that broadly something or other will occupy physicists for the next 25 years. Now, David has another characteristic which uh, only the cognoscenti will know. Uh, he always talks about something fundamental and profound, but usually it's only one or two things at a time. And these talks always go at least 50% over budget on time. Now, if David is planning to talk about 25 fundamental and important subjects, I don't know how late it will be when we finally are released, but I'm sure you will have a very interesting uh, time tonight. Uh, I would settle in, you know, uh, <laughs> make sure you're comfortable, and uh, enjoy yourselves. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, I am audible. Well, thank you very much, Kurt, and I'd like to thank the Hamilton family for this wonderful lectureship and for the opportunity to be here on, on this, this occasion and, uh, and tomorrow's celebration. Um, you know, when you get the Nobel Prize, you discover very rapidly many people who know you, met you, went to school with you, and claim you. So um, I've been claimed by my high school, which was actually in in Israel as well, and by my university where I got my bachelor's degree, <laughs> and by um, the University of California, Berkeley, where I got my PhD, and by Harvard, where I first went and got started on the road that led to uh, our discovery, and, um, and by Princeton, and of course by Santa Barbara, where I now work. Uh, but of all these places, I must admit, and with great pride, uh, that Princeton has the most to claim, and the most to be proud of, and in a sense, uh, the place which I, too, have the most um, gratitude to for the work that led us to uh, this year's Nobel Prize. After all, it was Princeton where the work was actually done. It's not true of all Princeton Nobel Prizes, by the way. The work was done in this very building or the building next door on the third floor. Uh, and it was Princeton, and especially the uh, theoretical particle physics group at Princeton, and especially Sam Treeman, and Murph Goldberger, who unfortunately aren't here today. I, I did see Murph a few days ago. He's um, 
luckily still alive and kicking pretty hard, but not enough to make it here. Uh, it's to them and the Princeton Physics Department that I owe an enormous debt of gratitude. They took me in at the beginning of my career, gave me encouragement, freedom. They gave me tenure long before I ever even thought of having to worry about applying. And uh, just two years before our groundbreaking work. Uh, they gave me great students, like Frank and others. Uh, so I have an enormous debt of gratitude to Princeton, which I'm glad and happy to acknowledge. And um, it's nice to still be a uh, professor, albeit emeritus at Princeton, and to be proud of Princeton upon this occasion. I looked at my uh, files for pictures, photographs, stuff that you can show on PowerPoint of that era. It was pretty hard to find, but I did manage to find a, a uh, faculty photo from 72, 73, which is the period, and I must say, your screen, with this magnificent building, the screen should be bigger. So if you look here, some of you can find yourselves. Many of you, some are not here anymore. Uh, there's, is Arthur in the audience? I was looking. There's Arthur Whiteman. Uh, Eugene is no longer with us. Jerry O'Neill is no, Barton Whiteman. There's Murph. Frank Shoemaker is here, I think, right here. If we go back, there's Stuart Friedman. There I am, looking like Che Guevara. There's Kurt. Uh, Pierre, right here. Sam Treeman, so on and so on. Uh, this was very interesting to look. I, I, this photo was sent to me by someone who was in the picture um, a few months ago. This is an enlargement. <laughs> That's me, if you can believe it. A lot of hair. There's Kurt. Same amount of hair <laughs> as he has now, but of a different color. And that's Eugene Wigner. So that's what uh, we looked like back then. This was the, the year 70, this is the fall of 72 when this, the work started. I couldn't find any photos of Frank and me or, you know, in general, members of the group working or playing together or anything. People didn't take much photos in those days, it seemed. I, the only photo I found was of Kurt and I, which is, I, I date as early 1972, uh, when we just moved into Jadwin, sort of. Uh, it's got to be 72 because I didn't have that beard you saw in the next picture, which I then had for a few years. So this is uh, my office there, and Kurt and I were working on something at that point. I don't know. Um, Anyway, that's all I could find of photographic evidence, but uh, the, the real evidence is in the journals. And as I said before, I uh, 
Thank you, Princeton. So now to the talk, and I won't count that 25 minutes. <laughs> so this is a talk. Uh, I said I was not going to talk about the past except briefly, as I just did, and about the Nobel Prize, but rather about the future. And this is a talk that I gave uh, originally in Santa Barbara, um, <clears throat> Who's the computer person? You have a, a width problem here? <laughs> Centering problem. <laughs> yeah, that's good. So on October, 20, on October 7th of last year, uh, the Akavli Institute for Theoretical Physics <clears throat> at Santa Barbara, which I direct, celebrated its 25th anniversary. And um, at the same time, we celebrated uh, some other events. We celebrated the inauguration of a new wing for the Institute, which you can see here in the picture, which was just completed. And we inaugurated, or we uh, opened a conference uh, called The Future of Physics, whence the title. And as it turned out, we celebrated the 2004 Nobel Prize in Physics. All four events happened at exactly, it turned out, the same time. And uh, that's a Nobel Prize. And any, <laughs> and many people asked me, how did you manage to arrange for all of these events to occur precisely the same week. And I said that was totally trivial. Uh, the anniversary of the Institute had been fixed 25 years ago. So <laughs> we knew when that was coming. And it was easy to arrange for the building to be completed six months after it was supposed to be completed. <laughs> and to agree with the anniversary, and the conference, of course, was timed to agree with the previous events. But what about the Nobel Prize? How did you manage to get that uh, announced two days before the conference and the celebration? And I said that also was trivial. All I had to do was, for years, write to the Nobel Physics Prize Committee, I would write every year and say, wait, not this year. <laughs> and they were very accommodating. <laughs> now, the Institute for Theoretical Physics is a uh, user's facility that brings in theorists from all over the world to work together on problems at the frontiers of physics. And of course, we define physics in a very a broad, ambitious, perhaps imperialistic sense, as you will see. And so in celebrating our 25th anniversary, we wanted to uh, 
cover all the fields of physics in a very broad sense. These fields being, some of them are noted here, uh, cosmology, astrophysics, general relativity, particle physics, string theory, condensed matter physics. Some of the connections between these fields, condensed matter physics is one of the broadest areas of theoretical physics and reaches out to new areas such as quantum computing, complexity, and now to biology. All of this it, we regard as physics. And theoretical physicists who work in all these areas come to our programs, often in programs in different fields, and talk to each other. All of these fields are intellectually highly connected. So we constructed a conference of uh, very eminent people in all of these fields who came to the Institute for a very short time, since they were so eminent they could only spare a day or two. We had a problem of how to devise a conference that would, whose scope would be all of physics in this very broad sense, consisting of very eminent people, all of whom had to talk. And they would only be there for a few days, and our biggest auditorium at the KITP only holds about 120 people. So we made a conference in which the longest talk uh, was, well, my talk was the longest talk, but that didn't count. <laughs> Most talks were five minutes, ten minutes. Um, but in order to convince people Instead of an hour-long talk that they're accustomed to give, they'd only have five minutes or ten minutes. We had to come up with a theory. So I'm going to present you with the ITP theory of talks. And it's based on the well-known Laffer curve, which you might recall from years back. Laffer was an economist who, during the Reagan administration, noticed that if you plot tax revenue, how much the government gets, versus tax rate, how much, what percentage they take, that if you, the tax rate is zero, the government gets zero. So the curve starts out like this. Then he noticed another deep fact, which is if the tax rate is 100%, then no one will do anything, and the government also gets zero. So the curve goes like this. He pointed out that this had been proved in the Soviet Union. <laughs> and then, like any good scientist, certainly a theoretical physicist, he made the simplest extrapolation <laughs> and uh, derived the Laffer curve. Now, the Laffer curve has one immediate implication, namely, there, I'm sorry, the, it, that there is an optimal tax rate for which the government gets an optimal revenue. There's no point in taxing below that rate, uh, or above it for that matter. Now, in the Reagan administration, indeed, the curve looked something like this, according to Laffer or Reagan. And there's something profoundly misleading with a simple theoretical model, and I'll leave it as an exercise for you to figure out what it is. But I'd like to present the KITP curve of talks. <laughs> we plot the quality of a talk versus the length of the talk. And again, it's, uh, it's clear that if you have zero minutes to talk, the quality is zero. 
It's less clear, but you'll agree after some thought that if the length of the talk is two weeks or a month, then the quality is zero. Therefore, we make the simplest extrapolation, again with the consequence that there is an optimal length of a talk to if you want to have maximal quality, at least quality perhaps per minute. There is no reason in the world why the optimal length of a talk should be 124th of the rotation period of the Earth. It's an arbitrary amount of time. And in fact, uh, after much experimentation at the Institute, where we have many conferences every year, uh, we've decided that it's closer to 30 minutes. And anyway, that was the kind of theory we developed to convince people that they would talk for short amounts of time. I'm going to now violate this theorem. All, all good theorems have exceptions. So to come back to the, uh, our conference, conference was the 25th anniversary. And of course, we wanted to summarize what had happened in the last 25 or so years of physics. Um, and we've learned an incredible amount of physics in the last 25 to 35 years. It, um, it's always amazing to go back in one's mind 25 or, say, in the case of particle physics, 35 years ago, uh, in the case of perhaps cosmology, 25 years ago, and, and just remember how much we've learned in such from a, even from a human point of view, such a short amount of time. 25, 35 years ago, we didn't understand in any quantitative, quantitative way at all uh, the nuclear forces in nature, the weak and strong nuclear forces. Today we do. We have the standard model, which is too good to be true. Complete theory of these fundamental, four, two of the four fundamental forces in nature. Um, at that time, gravity seemed a totally separate type of force, uh, different from the other forces in nature. Today, we're convinced that it is part of the next threshold of physics to understand how gravity merges with the other forces of nature. Uh, 25 years ago, we didn't know the fundamental parameters of the, of the universe. We didn't know how fast, within a factor of two, the galaxies were receding from us, nor what the content of energy and matter was in the universe, nor did we have any good evidence for most of the history of the universe. Today, we think we can trace that history back to the, almost to the very beginning, and we've measured the fundamental parameters of the universe, and we know how galaxies and uh, structure was formed in the universe. Uh, 25, 35 years ago, we didn't have a theory which explained in true quantitative depth how uh, phase transitions um, between different states of matter occurred. Uh, methods such as the renormalization group uh, that enabled us to understand that hadn't yet been invented or developed. The theories of complexity, pattern formation, hadn't yet been developed. New states of matter that are much more interesting and rich, such as the quantum Hall states or 
other strongly correlated electronic states hadn't yet been discovered. Uh, fields of science such as nanoscience or quantum computing, et cetera, et cetera, hadn't yet been investigated. It's amazing always to go back when look back 25, 35 years and realize what an extraordinary amount we've learned. But I always like to stress that the most important product of knowledge is ignorance. Uh, the future is shaped not so much by what we know, but what we don't know, the questions we are asking. That, those are the uh, things that define uh, the present research in science, where we're going. And um, although we know a lot today, we perhaps uh, are more ignorant than we were 25, 35 years ago. In other words, there are many more interesting, wonderful questions that we ask today than we did when I was a graduate student. Uh, and we can ask these wonderful, rich questions because we've learned enough to be intelligently ignorant. So the purpose of our conference was not just to summarize the wonderful achievements of the last 25 years, but rather to uh, assess where we are and look ahead. And therefore, we decided to end the conference with a list of 25, following the theme, questions that would define, perhaps, where we're heading in physics. 25 questions that might guide physics for the next 25 years. We uh, asked the participants in the conference to submit uh, questions from which a committee of one <laughs> chose 25 and added some, maybe. Uh, I mean, chose 25 questions uh, from all of these fields that we uh, in Santa Barbara call physics, which range from cosmology, astrophysics, condensed matter physics, particle physics, string theory, and now more and more biophysics or biology. And as it turned out, there were interesting questions on what you might call science policy and sociology of science, uh, which I also included. And in this lecture, I'm going to go through these questions, and they're supposed to give you an indication as to what, where physics might, might be going, or certainly is at the moment, at least is viewed by 25, or, well, by about 120 physicists, theoretical physicists, I remind you. There were one or, only one or two experimenters who were allowed in the room. It's very hard to get experimenters to shorten their talks to five minutes. Uh, and so this is an arbitrary group of people, uh, and it was an arbitrary choice. So you know, it shouldn't be taken too seriously. These are not questions, by the way, that if you answer them, you win a million dollars or something. Physics doesn't work that way. The questions will change over the next 25 years. Some of these will be answered, some will not. It's just really a mechanism to focus one's attention on what physicists are really working on now in the long-term projects. 
And where, do I, where does one start? Well, not with the most important question. There isn't any most important question. The only place to start, of course, is at the beginning. The question number one is the origin of the universe. How did the universe begin? Now, this is the kind of question that 25 years ago you couldn't ask as a serious physicist. Uh, people didn't publish papers on this. This was metaphysics, religion perhaps. But now it is at the forefront of research in two areas, in, in physics, in cosmology, astrophysics, and in string theory. And it uh, is an important question. As, we, as you know, when we, we see the universe expanding, and if we run that uh, backwards, the universe contracts, and we can, through direct observation of distant starlight, which informs us of the universe far back in its past, or, and especially with our theoretical tools that enable us to extrapolate even farther back, we think we know pretty much the history of the universe uh, from what appears to be a initial singularity state event called the Big Bang, which is where all of our extrapolations and all of our theoretical tools break down, even at so far string theory. Now, um, astronomers and astrophysicists have been able with very clever techniques to extrapolate directly back to 200,000 or so years after the Big Bang. One of the questions asked, one of the sub-questions that was discussed at the conference was, how far back can we probe? Are there ways of going through the sort of curtain of microwave background uh, when the light was freed into a regime where it's impossible to see directly radiation? Are there gravitational waves that can inform us about directly as to what happened close to the Big Bang? And there is role to try to do that for theorists and observers. The theorists are more interested in asking, can you really determine how the universe began? That is a question that physicists can ask. They're not exactly sure how they might answer it. Maybe they would, theories like string theory, which have so far enormous success in smoothing out what appear to be singularities, making them smoother, might actually give a theory which determined the initial condition, taught us in a unique way how the universe began and thereby determined its future. Some speculations about how that might proceed uh, say that there wasn't an event, a bang, but rather there was a collapse, a pre-Big Bang era, which was in which a collapse took place, a big crunch, then emerged to a Big Bang, perhaps in some smooth way. And as Paul Steinhardt here and others have 
speculated, perhaps the universe is actually cyclic and undergoes what appear to us as to be a succession of Big Bangs. Or perhaps, as many string theorists suspect, time itself is an emergent concept, and the very way we will ask this question will change. The question might be answered in the way that physicists have answered many other questions which appear unanswerable or unimaginably to answer by changing the nature of the question, which is what I would bet on. Question number two had to do, and three had to do with the content of the universe, which has only recently been and apparently convincingly measured both the matter content of the universe and the energy content. And as you know now, most of the matter, most of the particles that exist in the universe, it appears, are, are not the stuff we are made out of, are not the nuclei, the baryons, the protons that um, make up most of the visible matter in the universe, but rather are in a form of matter which exists because it exerts gravitational pull on objects we can see, and therefore we know it's there, but we know not what it is. And that makes up 25% of the energy content of the universe, roughly. We have no idea, really, in any definite form, what, uh, what is the nature of this dark matter. There are uh, many ideas, speculations, candidates for the form uh, for the nature of dark matter, uh, but we don't know. We don't know how it interacts with ordinary matter. We don't know whether it's the so-called uh, weakly interacting massive particles that have been hypothesized, WIMPs. And most importantly, we don't know how to detect it directly in the laboratory and see what it is. So we only see it because it acts as a source that pulls and uh, other matter that we can see. And we hope to detect it, to detect the wind of this dark matter that exists throughout the galaxy as it passes through the uh, earthly instrument, or to create it in the new accelerators that are being built. So this question as what is the nature of the dark matter and then also how it's distributed in the universe which affects how galaxies are formed. Galaxies essentially fall into the clumps of dark matter that first form and therefore this dark matter is crucial for the way the formation of structure, the formation of galaxies occurs in the history of the universe. This is a question that will undoubtedly occupy theorists and observers for years to come. An even more mysterious question is most of the energy in the universe is in a form uh, whose origin, again, we, we don't know or understand and uh, is even harder to detect. So the so-called dark energy I'm sure you've all heard of that because it's accompanied by dark negative pressure, almost like negative mass, you know, 
causes anti-gravity, causes the universe to expand and um, to expand in an accelerated fashion. The, ex the expansion accelerates. And that's how the dark energy is detected. But it's absolutely the only way we know and can imagine how to measure this dark energy. It's a kind of energy that is pervasive throughout the whole universe, uniform and homogeneous, and does not dilute. And in any particular place in the universe is so dilute that it has no effect on us or on anything. Only at the scale of the universe as a whole does it force it to expand. But uh, the measurement of this acceleration and the deduction of the dark energy came as a surprise. We don't know what it is. We don't know that it's, that it's not just a uh, momentary occurrence in the history of the universe. We don't know whether it'll go away. Uh, we don't know whether it's... It might just be Einstein's so-called cosmological constant, a term that Einstein added for good reasons uh, and bad reasons to his theory. Uh, it's a term that's allowed by his theory. It's a natural term. He added it to make a universe that was static um, once the universe was discovered to expand and his model to be unstable. He threw it away. But it's allowed. It could be there. In fact, in quantum mechanics, it's hard to understand how it isn't there since quantum mechanics... The vacuum is not an emptiness. It's not an empty nothing. In quantum mechanics, there can be no nothing, because if you try to observe nothing, you affect the system and something is there. So there are always fluctuations and things going on, even in the vacuum, because try to see if there isn't. Then you'll do something, and there will be something. That's the uncertainty principle. So there's always fluctuation in stuff going on in the vacuum and energy associated with that. And it's hard to imagine how, why there isn't such energy which would show up just like this dark energy that now has been observed. The problem has always been that any calculation that any physicist at any time ever did on the back of an envelope to calculate the dark energy, you'd be off by 120 orders of magnitude or 60 orders of magnitude. Who cares? You know, that's 10 with 60 zeros. And when physicists get answers to questions that are off by 10 with 60 zeros or off by infinity, they usually put zero in front of that and say, well, it must be zero. If it's so big, it must be zero. If it's infinite, it must be zero. They'll find the reason later. Well, that's what we expected, and then it turned out to be teensy but non-zero, and we don't understand it. And one of the really good questions here, again, is an observational one. Uh, how can we tell? Can we really rule out the simple cosmological constant or see time variation? That's a problem that is uh, generating a lot of research at the moment. The answer to this problem will occupy people for years. Question number four is still in the realm of astrophysics. And here I found very interesting uh, there, there were detailed questions about in fields that are very old, 
questions in astronomy, such as how do stars form? You would think astronomers and astrophysicists knew the answer to that question. If you take a course in astronomy, they will tell you how stars are formed. But in fact, when you challenge them now, and they have been challenged recently by uh, recent observations of the first stars that were formed. So the theory of star formation was based on stars that are formed in nebula around us. Uh, but the first stars were formed under different circumstances. There were no metals. Astronomers call metals anything that's heavier than helium. Uh, as far as I can see. And there are no metal, there are no higher elements that are in the very first stars because all the higher elements, the stuff we're made out of, for example, carbon and so on, were formed in stars. So you couldn't have them before there were stars. These stars were formed from hydrogen helium. And uh, astronomers, astrophysicists haven't done so well in predicting or even understanding how the first stars were formed and what their characteristics should look like. And in general, they're being challenged today to come up with a truly quantitative theory of star formation in which you might understand not just, not just have these pictures, but be able to predict the spectrum of masses formed, the frequency of binaries, for example, how many stars are born in pairs, binaries, and how they cluster. And a new area of formation, which has been revived by, ob uh, by observation in the last decade, is the theory of planet formation, which wasn't much of a theory, and partly because there was very little data on anything, anything but the planets in our solar system. And now there are hundreds of observed planets uh, outside our solar system, so there's real data and a great push to construct a truly quantitative and correct theory of planet formation to be able to answer questions like, uh, what is the likelihood, how many of uh, the formation of planets that could support life, how many are there, and so on. And here, too, observationally, how could one directly measure um, the existence of life on uh, of living organisms on other planets by, for example, measuring spectra of their atmospheres. From astrophysics, let's move to general relativity, which is the theory that underlies the theory of gravity and therefore cosmology and astrophysics in the large. Here I found interesting that uh, people asked whether general relativity is correct at all scales. Einstein's theory of relativity has been tested. Some of the most important tests were, were uh, stimulated by work done here and or by people who are here now. But most of the tests of general relativity occur in the regime where gravity is a very weak Gravity, under normal situations, is a very weak force. After all, remember, you can overcome gravity uh, with a simple bar magnet. You can overcome, pull on a paperclip, and overcome the pull of the whole Earth. So gravity is nothing 
at, under normal circumstances. But, and the, the most dramatic predictions of relativity of Einstein's theory have to do with cases where gravity is very strong. You've all heard of black holes. Can this be tested? And will strong gravity survive the observational tests that are now possible using, we have for the first time, observatories uh, that can detect gravitational waves? These observatories are very large interferometers that are so delicate that they can measure a gravitational wave that comes by and shortens one of the two-mile arm lengths, lengths of this interferometer by a millionth of the diameter of one atom. And with that, you can detect even these very weak gravitational waves that are produced in violent collisions. Since gravity is such a weak force, you need a very violent collision to produce a wave that will survive until it hits the Earth and be detectable. They can be produced, for example, where two black holes coalesce to form a bigger black hole. Now, in order to be able to pick out the signal and test general relativity, one needs to know precisely the form of the pulse of gravitational radiation that would be emitted. And that's a problem that you, you can write down the equations. They're essentially Einstein's equations. They were written down more than 50 years ago. And, uh, but nobody can solve them, even with high-powered computers, to the degree that, that, the exper that the experimenters, observers need. A more interesting possibility is to take the black holes we know now exist in the center of almost every galaxy, including our own, which has a massive black hole with a million times the mass of the sun in the center of our galaxy, and see whether the geometry, the curvature of space in the vicinity of this black hole um, actually agrees with Einstein's predictions. Space is highly curved, but how to test that? I mean, we're not going to send the poor astronaut close to this black hole. But there is stuff falling into the black hole, and as it falls in, it radiates, and maybe one can uh, determine the so-called metric or the curvature of space in the vicinity of these or other black holes. And that would be a nice test. Well, it turned from general relativity to another grand structure of theoretical physics, quantum mechanics. And I found it interesting that uh, there were many people, very eminent people, these two Nobel Prize winners among this group, uh, who asked whether quantum mechanics is the ultimate description of nature or will it fail. And there were four separate reasons where four separate very eminent physicists suspected that quantum mechanics might fail, which is very important. Quantum mechanics is the basis of all of modern physics. One is at very short distances. That's a common view of many, that somehow when you go down to shorter distances, especially when you try to incorporate Einstein's theory of gravity where space and time are quantum fluctuating objects, it's quantum mechanics that will give 
not Einstein's theory. Ed Hooft, for example, pushes this, the bottom. Somehow there is a deterministic, non-probabilistic theory uh, which replaces quantum mechanics in some deep sense. There are other people who believe that in very large, complex systems, quantum mechanics will fail. Anyone who's taken quantum mechanics so far feels that somewhat uneasy about the quantum mechanics and its interpretation, at least as, as it usually is presented. Uh, Schrodinger's cat, you remember, the cat that is in a superposition of being dead plus alive. This not or alive, but in this situation where it's sort of both before you observe it and then it a wave function collapses. It sounds crazy, right? And there are physicists, eminent physicists, Tony Leggett, who says, well, maybe quantum mechanics fails for large, complex systems like cats. <laughs> There's an experimental program trying to create larger and larger systems that have quantum coherence. And he suspects that it might fail. And then there are people like Roger Penrose who say, well, it's where it will fail will be in the brain. If you try to explain consciousness, thought, the thing where the collapse of the wave function takes place, there quantum mechanics will fail. I find none of these convincing. But the one that bothers me the most is our way of thinking of quantum mechanics when we try to describe the universe as a whole, not a subsystem of a bigger system, but the whole shebang. And especially in the light of speculation nowadays uh, in inflationary theories of the universe, those are our successful theories, which talk about separate portions of the universe suddenly undergoing fluctuations that lead to inflation, and different pieces of the universe inflate away, never to be causally connected again. What does it mean to talk about the wave function of such a multiverse? This is actually uh, an important question for people who are trying to understand quantum cosmology and the origin and the future of the universe. Well, let's go down to more practical things in particle physics. And a few questions of particle physics. One are the many, many mysteries that remain, even though we have such a fundamental, successful, quantitative, wonderful theory, standard model, which is our theory of electricity and magnetism, radioactivity, the weak nuclear force, and the strong nuclear force. But this theory, the so-called standard model, has many features that are somewhat arbitrary, ad hoc, incalculable so far, and mysterious. And uh, the most mysterious or incalculable so far are the masses and mixings of all the quarks and the leptons. So we have all these fundamental particles, quarks that make up the nuclei, leptons like the electron, the neutrino, three families of such quarks and leptons, 
And they all have masses. What are the masses? Well, they're these numbers. They start with small masses of the up and down quarks. Then you go to the heavier quarks. You get up to a quark which weighs as much almost as a gold nucleus. A hundred thousand times more massive than the light quarks. And the same crazy spectrum for the leptons and the neutrinos have masses which are crazy as well. And the mixings between them, and the interactions that mix them, it's a, just a, a mess. There's no pattern, particularly. You'd think with having measured, you know, maybe 20 numbers, but there'd be some pattern that would emerge, some simplicity. No. So it's a mess. We don't think the standard model as such can explain it, for sure. Big mystery. There are other mysteries that are, we think we know the answer, that are important. We think we know that protons, the basic quarks that, uh, baryons that make up uh, nuclei of atoms, are unstable, will decay. Diamonds aren't forever, as Lashaw used to say. We have no way yet of really calculating the lifetime, which would be useful for those who might like to observe it. Given that they decay, we think that the baryons that exist in the universe, the matter, uh, was produced from a state that was not matter-antimatter preferential. And the excess of matter over antimatter is a phenomena whose origin we can explain quantitatively and also qualitatively. Sorry, qualitatively and also calculate. But that, again, hasn't yet been finished. And these, again, are... And there's so many other questions in the standard model um, that haven't yet been answered definitively either by observation or, or by theory. But the major question for the standard, for particle physics, experimental as well as theoretical, is supersymmetry. It is, uh, supersymmetry is a new symmetry invented by theorists, which is a marvelous extension of Einstein's space-time symmetries. Beautiful. Also, a symmetry that is suggested in, by experiment in some sense. When we take the standard model, which has these various forces, strong, weak, and electromagnetic, and extrapolate it, it appears that all the forces seem to unify quite precisely at a very high energy. But only if we assume this extra supersymmetry that comes in right about here. This extrapolation is quite precise and remarkable and is one of our strongest clue to many things. It's our strongest clue to what the next unification scale is and suggests that gravity comes into play, but it's also our strongest indication that supersymmetry is real and is awaiting to be discovered by the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, this new accelerator that is finally being completed at CERN, Geneva, um, in two years. And we hope we'll settle this question. It is of crucial importance for the field. If it is discovered, it's a major, stupendously important experiment. It, in effect, will be discovering quantum dimensions of space and time. 
these symmetries are symmetries of a space which has extra space dimensions, except they're sort of quantum dimensions. They're expressed in terms of uh, quantum coordinates. But, and if it's discovered, it will start off a years and years of experimental and theoretical discovery to understand how it's broken, why it wasn't manifest that the symmetry was there, because the world uh, breaks that symmetry. And what is the spectrum of the particles the, that are predicted by the symmetry? And then, once we know that, to extrapolate backwards, to add to this very simple extrapolation of the force many more ways of extrapolating to this scale where string theory or something else might uh, be fundamental. Before I leave the standard model, I want to come to one part that I'm most proud of, QCD. That's the theory that we arrived at up on the third floor uh, with the discovery of asymptotic freedom, the theory of the nuclear force. And back in the 70s, I was pretty sure that it was such a beautiful theory. We would solve it in a few years. Beautiful theories should be soluble. And we've been trying to solve QCD for over 30 years. And we still haven't solved it. And uh, that still is a major question that drives many people to try to construct techniques to analytically solve this beautiful theory. We can, for example, calculate the masses of the strongly interacting particles, the particles that make up the nucleus and their friends, by reducing that problem to an integral. The integral happens to be sort of even with approximate, you know, when you make a slight approximations, a billion dimensional, so you have to do it on a computer. That, in a sense, is a calculation, but it's not a satisfactory calculation, and we would like to actually solve it in pencil and paper. And there is a strategy which is being much investigated now, which is probably the best strategy, which actually is to construct a string-like representation of um, quark, anti-quark particles that are made out of quark and anti-quark, since they're sort of held together by a string, a color flux tube, and behave very much like strings, it appears. And within the theory, we have very strong evidence within QCD, and now from string theory side, that there is such a, another description of hadrons, mesons, as strings. And that string theory might be easier to understand, at least in a in a systematic uh, approximation. So this, too, is a question that will drive research in theoretical particle physics for many years, hopefully less than 25. Now I turn to string theory, where I think the main question is, what is string theory? 
And that might appear to be a silly kind of question. What do you mean, what is string theory? But the problem in string theory is we really don't know how to answer that question. And if you take a string theorist and ask them, what is string theory? They'll give you one answer or another. And after a while, you keep saying, but what is the theory? They'll realize that they don't know how to answer that question. What we have in string theory is a, a whole collection of different approximations, of different ways of constructing approximate calculations of the theory under certain conditions, in certain backgrounds, starting from certain starting points. And the remarkable thing we've learned in the last 10 years, 15 years, 10 years really, is that uh, there are more and more of these different representations. They look totally different. The so-called lessons of duality, dual representations of the same thing, but the real thing is we don't know what that we're representing. We just have these dual representations. They're totally different. Some of them look like the way we started to think about string theory. Strings, one-dimensional extended objects, you know, moving in some background, say in this room, moving, and then you quantize that and calculate quantum perturbations. But we have, and, that, and we used to think we had five such different theories of strings moving in some background. We discovered they're all the same. Different approximations under different circumstances to the same thing, which we don't know what it is. But then we discovered all sorts of other representations or other dual uh, string descriptions of string theory. Some of them are Strings moving on various, very curved space-times. Well, that's good because we don't want to have ten dimensions. But then we also discovered some of them are equally described by a theory in eleven dimensions, not ten. Theory don't exactly understand, except at low energies. And then equivalent to that theory, there's a quantum mechanical theory of spins. Just spins with a Hamiltonian. There's no space at all. No X's. Just time, a Hamiltonian, spins, space emerges in that theory. There's no gravity, because there was no space. Gravity emerges. Theory of spins, space, all of space and all of gravity emerge. And then most famously, we discovered a dual theory, which is four-dimensional gauge theory. The very theory we use in the standard model. All of these are describing the same physics. Some of them have four dimensions, some of them have ten dimensions, some of them have eleven dimensions, some have no dimensions, or at least no spatial dimensions. Some of them have space, some don't. Some have gravity, some don't. They're all the same. They're related in very strange ways. I think this is an enormous threat to the way we usually think about elementarity. What does it mean to talk about a theory with elementary constituents, degrees of freedom? How do you formulate a theory? What are you talking about? We have all these different formulations, totally different degrees of freedom. And locality, which gets mixed up when you do these uh, transformations. And we don't really know what the theory is. Now, what I think one of the reasons we don't really know is the next question, which is, I think, the sort of the most 
important question in the guts of string theory, which is, what is space-time? And as uh, Ed Whitten likes to say, space and time may be doomed. Is space and time doomed? Now, we, most string theorists believe that this is the case, that space is certainly an emergent concept. We know now in string theory we can tear space, change its topology. We can change the dimensions by dialing parameters in the theory, or couplings. By going to another regime, we can change a number of dimensions. We have dual representations with no dimensions, three dimensions, nine dimensions, ten dimensions, any dimension you want. Dimension doesn't mean anything. Space, also, we have representations with no space. And if space is emergent, space-time must be emergent. This is, these are all theories of, end up once space has emerged as relativistic theories, space and time are unified. But we don't really know what it would mean to have a theory in which time, all of space-time, were truly emergent. How do you formulate physics from the beginning without time? Physics is about time. You predict the future given the present. We evolve in time. Uh, I think here is where eventually there will in understanding this thing we've been led to, um, where the breakthrough, some Heisenbergian breakthrough will occur, maybe tell us what string theory is. String theory, the way, string theory, by the way, is so broad now, so connected to everything else that it can't be killed. Um, <laughs> it's one of its disadvantages, perhaps an advantage, but it can, as much as certain members of the audience might like to kill it, it can't be because it's continuously logically connected to the standard model, which has been pronounced by the Swedish Academy as correct. <laughs> Next question is string theory-ish at the moment, but wider and of great interest. And that is physics and environmental science. The way I prefer to put this is, are all the parameters laws that characterize the physical universe calculable in principle? Or are some determined by accident? Much like the orbits of the planets. There, we don't believe there's any theory, any way we are ever going to calculate the orbit. They were orbits of the planets in our solar system. They were determined uh, by accident in a rather chaotic dynamical system. Is that true of laws of the universe or of some of the parameters that characterize the universe? I certainly hope not. I believe not. I like to go along with Einstein, who stated the strongest possible demand on nature as a, you know, as an obvious to him, that nature is constituted so that it is possible to lay down such strongly determined laws that within these laws only rationally, that doesn't mean rational, it means with your mind, completely determined constants occur, not constants that could be changed without completely destroying the theory. So if the 
famous fine structure constant is 1 over 137.02, whatever. That number has to be what it is. If you were to change it by 1%, that theory would collapse, according to Einstein. We should be able to calculate it. Um, there is another point of view. The point of view is that the universe evolved. It had dynamically many choices. In some of them, there might be different dimensions of space-time, different fundamental laws, and different values of the fine structure constant. In string theory, this has become uh, known as the landscape scenario, uh, whereby people looking for solutions so-called vacua, possible states of the universe, stable states of the universe, have discovered an incredible multitude of what they think are might be possible states. Not stable states that you could stay in forever, but metastable states. Which might be good enough, they argue, and many of them. And they imagine that as the universe evolved after the Big Bang, Periodic inflation occurred at different portions, driving the universe perhaps spontaneously, perhaps dynamically, into or different portions of this multiverse into different places, each with its different laws, different constants, different uncalculable features. Um, the only way to distinguish, or perhaps to be able to say something about the environment in which we live, is to invoke the fact that we are alive and asking the question, the so-called anthropic principle. Now, I do not like this at all. I think it's defeatist and premature, and so on and so on, and hope that Einstein is right. But it is impossible to logically rule out and clearly a fundamental question that will occupy us now for a long time those of us who would like to rule out this possibility have only to calculate something successfully to show that it is not determined by historical accident another question I like is whether the traditional distinction in physics between kinematics and dynamics will disappear. The traditionally, physics has distinguished between, always had three components. Uh, kinematics, sort of the general framework, such as in the case of uh, modern physics, quantum field theory. And then specific dynamics, which you guess or uh, deduced from experiment, which fits into the kinematical framework. And then, of course, there are also initial conditions. We've already saw that we're beginning to ask, are there principles that determine the initial conditions? And why is there a distinction? I strongly suspect, um, partly based on the fact that in string theory, whatever the theory is, there doesn't seem to be any other kind of dynamics that's possible. We, in this framework that incorporates, that includes um, relativistic quantum field theory and gravity. And furthermore, as we 
change our notions of space and time, as I remarked, this distinction will be blurred. And that might change the way we think about quantum mechanics because the basic kinematical framework is quantum mechanics, and it, I imagine, will become more strongly enmeshed in the dynamical framework and maybe be less mysterious, more inevitable, but I strongly doubt any more deterministic. So now let's turn to condensed matter physics. Now, condensed matter physics is the hardest field to get questions of this nature from. When I asked my some condensed matter physicists for questions for this conference, they would say, well, we don't ask questions of nature. We wait to see what the experimenters discover, and then we explain it or try to. We don't have these questions that should last for 25 years. Very hard to get uh, questions. For, I did manage, finally, in the end, after sending out a special plea, and people like Phil were, and others were, uh, were glad to do that. But in general, it is a hard field to get people willing to put forward questions for a long period of time. Maybe they're wiser, and, uh, but it's interesting. Uh, one of the questions that was clearly is dominating research for theoretical um, quantum condensed matter physics, hard condensed matter physics, as it's called, is uh, the nature of phases of matter that are not described by sort of the standard model, or the standard model until recently, Fermi liquid theory, which works for... Um, most metals, semiconductors, under normal circumstances. And the question is, are there generic non-Fermi liquid behaviors of interacting systems which are not just inventions of theorists? They, theorists have, there are such states, clearly, like the quantum Hall effect and maybe high-TC superconductivity that have been observed in the real world. And theorists have managed to come up with all sorts of wonderful new phases, but it's still a very open question, and one that is driving the field, uh, as to whether there are real phases and how to access them and how do they behave and so on. A field that didn't exist when the IT, or just began when the ITP began, uh, and, maybe, and does not seem to have lived up to its advertisement, is the field of complexity. This is a question of Jim Langer, who is... Uh, asked, um, expressed the state of our ignorance very nicely in the following way. What is the, the theory of very large complex systems? So nowadays we have these big computers, and they are used as the standard way of trying to understand complicated systems. The Earth's climate, chemical processes, in biology, in the brain even. These are very complicated systems. And there is sort of a general theory of such systems that says there's just so much you can predict. There are limits to predictability because these systems have a variety of chaotic features. Then you do a calculation, do a simulation, and out comes output. 
And how do you look at the output of these very complicated simulations and decide whether uh, you're finding something interesting, something chaotic, or just garbage, or you have error. I mean, there's no theory of taking advantage of the computing power to deduce something universal or applicable to other systems and so on. And he asks, what do we do? Essentially, complexity theory uh, hasn't delivered on its initial promises. There are interesting questions about quantum computers. This is a very popular uh, field now among experimenters and theorists. And um, the question I found most interesting was, will quantum computers be quiet or deaf? See, the problem with quantum, quantum computers are computers like this, except they're made out of quantum mechanical systems that really are superpositions of the half-dead, half-alive cat, but are more like spins. But they're quantum bits of information in a quantum state which can, in principle, store many more, much more information in a small number of bits and manipulate it and do problems that the NAS, that the National Security Agency is fascinated by, like cracking, factoring large primes. No, that would be good. Factoring large numbers. Uh, <laughs> factoring large numbers, which is at the basis of you know, our, our uh, many codes. So the question is how to, how to build a, a system with lots of qubits, quantum bits, that can stay in this quantum state and avoid decoherence, the outside perturbations of the environment that uh, reduce this quantum computer to a classical one you can buy from Dell. So uh, there are two strategies to deal with this. The one is the old one, which is uh, natural, you, you, you just make the computer very quiet. You isolate it from the environment as much as possible and hope to reduce the, this decoherence. And that's a strategy that most people are pursuing with most imagined implementations of quantum computers. The other strategy is to construct a, so a deaf computer, uh, which is to encode uh, the, topo the information in topological quantum bits, which are much more subtly s expressed, so they're really decoupled from the noise around them. They're, um, they're not local uh, excitations of a many-body system, but non-local and topologically stable. And here, the challenge is... Uh, uh, at the moment, to theorists mostly, to come up with systems, get some idea of what kind of systems one might be able to construct in the real world that have such quantum bits that could be manipulated to form a real computer. It's quite fascinating. And it's a totally orthogonal approach. And then the real question is, can you construct a real quantum computer like this? Um, to construct, it seems, a quantum computer, you know, the, these computers have billions and billions of bits. Uh, a real quantum, a quantum computer would be enough, it seems, to have around 10,000 quantum bits. The only problem is that so far, 
people have managed only to construct uh, quantum computers, if you could call them that, with two bits or maybe three bits. So it's a long way. Um, there were some interesting questions on applications. This is a bunch of theorists, very high-level theorists, but there were still some interesting uh, can we understand how to make a material that's superconducting at room temperature and beyond? Is it possible? Is it impossible? Uh, clearly, it's an indication that our theory of superconductivity, high temperature superconductivity, uh, is still very primitive, if existent at all. And uh, would have to be better to understand whether there's a barrier at room temperature or not. It would be very important if there were not. Another interesting question was, can we understand how to make a ferromagnet, you know, an ordinary, a big magnet, but out of engineerable electronic semiconducting materials, say? Then I turned to the newest area of physics. Physics is an imperialistic field. Physicists do... Uh, you know, or, or like to take on whatever problem is interesting and exciting and they feel they can make a contribution to. And biology is certainly now one of those fields. Biology has now amassed enormous amounts of quantitative, very important data, like the human genome. A physicist looking at the human genome says, all that data? I should be able to understand life, given that data. And many have... Many have arrogantly moved into to try to um, do quantitative biology. It's very healthy. Uh, they have done this in a very serious way. Many have become biologists, but they remain physicists in the way they ask questions. They ask, for example, questions that biologists haven't typically asked is, is there a theory of biology? the way that we think of what a theory is in physics. Can theoretical physics help? Is new mathematics required? Um, people will argue about these questions, and they're not answerable, I think, at the moment, because the attempts to construct, to find universal features and testable, quantifiable models is, is rather new. It's an interesting thing to think about whether new mathematics is involved. Most of mathematics was, much of mathematics evolved in response to questions posed by physics. And biology uh, is quite different in many respects. Some of them, one, one, one reason, for example, that's so not, well, Is this room? I don't like this so much because. Uh, what is the uh, fact that that biology exhibits dynamics over so many wide-ranging timescales? If you think about the fact that as I talk to you now, there are, I hope certain changes, chemical changes happening in your neurons 
when the synapses. And the time constants there can be very, very short. They're chemical reactions that are taking place. And those changes that happen on uh, time scales of nanoseconds in response to listening to me might affect you 30 years from now. You might say, oh, yes, gross. And might affect your behavior, might affect your evolution. You know, your, certainly your behavior as a biological creature. There are, that's an incredible array of time scales. And uh, it's very different, it seems to me, than many of the atom the physical systems we tend to we've investigated so successfully in physics. The area uh, of biology where many physicists have gone because, as I said, the data is so good is genomics, where one has the genome. Can one say something quantitative given the genome? Can the theory of evolution, for example, be made quantitative and predictable? Or is it just a, uh, you know, a history, uh, a random history of historical accidents <laughs> directed by evolution, by selection? Thank you. <laughs> and uh, the way I like, the nicest form of this question was to imagine the final exam in, in quantitative biolo theoretical biology 101 where uh, students are given a piece of the genome and asked to draw a picture of the organism. <laughs> will we ever get to that stage? Physicists have also gone into neuroscience. There are some in the audience. Uh, for many years, here it's clear, to even the bi biologists, that you need a quantitative approach, even to uh, store the data and analyze the data, but certainly to understand how the brain works. And uh, physicists here, however, are willing to ask, approach often neuroscience differently from people coming in to the same field from biology or medicine. And they certainly are interested in the, the deep questions like memory and consciousness. Uh, they'd like to understand those in theory, the principles underlying and a system that has memory and consciousness. And I love this question, which I think was asked by Phil Anderson, uh, who just left, but so I can't tell me. But, but I love this question. Um, can one measure the onset of consciousness in an infant? And this is the way a physicist would approach the issue of consciousness. You know, ask a practical question that ha can be determined experimentally. Uh, it's based on the obvious assumption that an infant, a newly born infant, isn't conscious. And if you proud fathers mothers dispute that. We could go back to the embryo at some point. Wasn't conscious. And a teenager uh, is probably conscious <laughs> most of the time. 
Somewhere in between, consciousness turned on. Was it smooth? Was it sudden? Was it, as we would say, continuous, discontinuous? What kind of phase transition it is? But most interesting, can one measure? Now, to measure, you have to define, or at least define something correlated with consciousness that could be measured. Uh, that's a wonderful question, and it pro it's the way a physicist would think about this problem. And then, can one make a machine with free will? Even without understanding it, just make a machine that has free will uh, and purposeful teleonomic behavior. There are questions about computers, computational physics, which has become a big part of physics nowadays, certainly for complex systems, but for anything. I mean, I no longer try to do an integral. Why bother? You put it in Mathematica, solve a differential equation, analyze a complex system. So will computers replace analytic techniques completely? They seem to be going in that direction, and if so, how should we modify the way we train physicists? We don't train physicists, you know. We train physicists the way we used to, uh, with nice, soluble examples. Is that the right way? Maybe. But now we have this other way that's taking over. We should probably teach the students how to do that as well. Uh, it's an interesting question. Frank Wilczek. Uh, asked this question, which I love. When will computers become creative theoretical physicists? Uh, notice he didn't, he didn't ask will, when will. And even before they become creative theoretical physicists, he asked, how should we train them? <laughs> and this I find fascinating because, you know, if you think about it, it's not at all obvious that if you had a computer that could be trainable to be a creative theoretical physicist, you'd start with Newton and then, you know, go through the history of physics the way we teach our students. Maybe you'd start with string theory or modern physics. Is that, I don't know. It's interesting to think about you could try different experiments different, on different computers and test them. It's interesting. There are some interesting questions, now we're getting into sociology of physics, about the nature of the field. One was balkanization. There was a question, uh, given the diversity of physics, which now ranges from string theory to wet biology, an incredible range of things that physicists do. And you might ask, how do you define a physicist anyway? Well, for the purpose of... Uh, I think the purpose, my purpose, the way I define a physicist, is anyone who has studied E&M using Jackson. <laughs> that eliminates the engineers. <laughs> and you all laugh, the physicists all laugh because, you know, that, that's right, that's what it means. At least now I'd say it's to be a physicist, but, and, it's just a sign that what creates a field like physics is graduate education. And uh, the worst thing that could happen to physics would be that all of these fields, these new fields into which physics expands, field, they want to go out on their own and create their own department and their own curriculum, much like chemistry did uh, 
split into organic and inorganic without a common graduate curriculum. And th this would be a great pity. Would this balkanization continue so that we became a bunch of specialized subfields and important centers of excellence, such as the KITP, would no longer be relevant because we bring together all these different parts of physics. And our conference actually proved that this is is still good and people can still talk to each other and should remain within the same field because they all listen to each other with great joy and could follow each other. I included a question about, philosophical question by Tony Leggett about reductionism. Should we really take it for granted that big things are all determined by the behavior of little things? Uh, I think he believes that this might be threatened because of the quantum mechanical stuff I told you about before. But um, I'm a strict reductionist at heart. Uh, wonder because of these string UV infrared confusions we get into sometimes. There was an interesting question about the role of theory in science and in physics which mirrors a lot of discussions one often has in, in faculty meetings about hiring theorists, which was nicely put by Bert Halpern. What is the proper role of theory in physics and science? There are two ways you might look at the role of theory. One might be as a handmaiden of experiment. So you judge a theory whether it can reproduce in every detail the experiments, reality. Or another goal might be to achieve a higher level, a true understanding of the principles of physics. And you might do that by focusing on certain models, well-defined models which are consistent with general principles, but you don't care as much as to whether those models are really realized in the real world. They illustrate the general principles so you truly understand uh, our theories and, and the nature of what we observe. Uh, another way of putting it is that the second group values simplicity, mathematical elegance, the first, the ability to describe complicated systems with all their details. So it's a very nice way of putting the two roles, the two roles that theorists play in science and in, especially in physics, and uh, both are clearly important and justified, and uh, some people do go from one to the other. Some people just do one. They're both very important. Should both be encouraged. And the final question was a question on dangers, and it was dangers to big science. And it was posed not by a particle physicist, where you might expect, where we're building these bigger and bigger accelerators which take more than one decade, two, at least now, to, complete, to plan and complete enormous detectors, humongous budgets, fantastically large groups. It seems that we can see already the dangers of uh, running out of the ability to carry out such feats. 
But this was asked by an astrophysicist, actually, this question. He said, one can see traditional big physics, including astrophysics, projects becoming unrealizable over the next 25 years. The questions are still likely to be there. And this is true, as I said, in particle physics, though we, are, we can see things going forward. They're going forward now, and they are likely to do so. But in the next 25 years, the big dangers to continuing this uh, are already very visible. And the same is true in astrophysics, where the appetite and the instruments necessary to answer some of the big questions that are out there, the origin of the universe, the detecting the gravitational waves that came from the Big Bang and right after, uh, and so on and so on, detecting planets and observing the atmospheres of those planets are going to require instruments that are beginning to be as big, if not bigger, than instruments we need in particle physics and perhaps as unrealizable in the near future. So, what new approaches should be considered now, and what should the role of theorists be in doing this? The danger is there. What should we do? It's easy to tell experimenters and observers what to do. Go out and design cheaper and better and more efficient instruments. But what should theorists be doing to deal with this danger now and not 25 years from now? So that's the 25 questions. I added one more because I knew the answer. Will physics continue to be important? Will the KITP continue to be important? And the answer is yes. Thank you. Well, I, I lived up to your prediction. <laughs> David has conclusively demonstrated that the optimal time for, a, for the transmission of information by verbal means is not 1 24th of one Earth revolution. <laughs> but maybe there are some other questions that require a little bit of clearing up that the audience would like to pose. Or is the, I have the mic. Yes. You have the mic. Somebody to try to. Yes. So there's. This isn't working here. Are you? Um, with the, okay. It's fine. I was curious. Uh, besides the relevance of physics, uh, were there any questions that just sort of didn't quite make the 25 grade, the top 25 grade? Oh yeah. Can to explain? Uh, <laughs> no, there were, there, were, there were no questions that stick in my mind that didn't make the 25. Uh, there were, there were other, many other questions in all these branches of physics. Uh, after all, this covered many different areas. But as you must have noticed, each of these questions has sub-questions, so they're there are really many more than 25 questions there. Did you take any votes? Like, you know, no. 
is there going to be is, is reductionism dead or likely to die or is uh, time and space doomed? Are there any votes on these matters? No, no, no. too bad. No. <laughs> Phil came back to to haunt you. <laughs> it struck me that theory might have an, a different role from either of the ones that you described there, and a very important role, namely to find analogies between phenomena in different areas and different fields and on different scales and different in, on, in, in very different systems. But uh, just with the way things work and the way things work in computers and the way things work in the brain or the way things work in uh, elementary particle physics and the way things work in uh, sub-micro degree physics uh, can be very very similar and you can use the same ideas on each of them and I think that's that reveals uh, a lot of new a lot of uh, a lot about what's going on now I agree completely Hi, uh, thanks a lot for the great lecture. Um, I, we're living in a political climate in, at in which at least two of the possible subjects of tw this 25-year future inquiry um, are becoming more and more controversial. I'm thinking about schools, um, teaching of Big Bang Theory versus creationism. Um, I know recently some movie theaters are starting to refuse to play movies with um, that, that this one movie about volcanoes from IMAX that uh, talks about the Big Bang Theory. Um, and the, the onset of consciousness in children, again, related, I think, to all these culture of life debates. And I'm curious as to how you see physics tackling the hostile, uh, it seems to me, the somewhat hostile environment that is developing, I think, unfortunately, uh, in this country towards these sorts of subjects in the ways in which uh, physicists are often interested in addressing them? Well, I, I always thought that physics was pretty safe, <laughs> luckily, uh, from, from this craziness, and that biologists had much more to fear. But as you say, uh, it's on the increase. Everywhere now, and um, this religious fundamentalism, um, and it's uh, very scary. There are many other things scary in the real world, uh, in the political world, but this is pretty scary. And scientists had better stand firm and fight back uh, with the truth, which is the best weapon.
Do you, do you have any predictions as to what the most important applications of physics will be in the most 25 years? I mean, for example, is there consensus among physicists on the possibility of cold fusion? Uh, you know, it, it is, interestingly enough, it is much harder either to predict the future of technology than that of basic science, or to ask interesting questions about applications in technology than it is about basic science. Uh, technology comes out of our advances in understanding in basic science, but it's also shaped by culture and history. And so it's almost impossible to predict, as you must have noticed, even in a short lifetime nowadays. Um, whereas basic science, to some extent, is, you can do a pretty good job because, as I said, it is the questions we ask that frame the field for the neck for the future. So we can pretty well predict. It's been worked for the last few hundred years that once we can ask these questions in a very precise fashion, then by George, in a decade or two, we answer them, especially if we have the experimental tools to probe. Now, um, so technology I'm not wise enough, nor do I believe any of us are, to be able to predict. Much more likely we'll be able to predict uh, what kinds of advances in basic science will be made. Cold fusion, however, is one thing where people actually, the basic science is quite well known, and I would think that the overwhelming consensus of certainly all the, the scientists in this room and everywhere, is that it is extremely unlikely, at least the kind of cold fusion that has been talked about and there was all this fuss about a few years, a few years ago. Well, I think it's time for us to thank our speaker again for the